Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and really looking forward to diving into today's episode with you about comparative suffering, what it is, and how it's holding you back. So let's dive right in. So comparative suffering is the act of ranking our pain against others' pain. So for example, someone who's maybe going through a tough breakup might see their pain, their emotional pain, as worse than someone who is stressed because they are not doing as well as they wanted to in a class they're taking, but they might compare their pain as being less bad compared to someone experiencing something like poverty and homelessness. So I will say right away, comparative suffering does not benefit anyone. And in this episode, we're going to delve into why that is and what you should be doing instead. This is also going to relate to our topic for next week's episode, which is all about why and how sharing our stories are so powerful. So this is going to be a bit of a theme coming up because it's incredibly important and it relates directly to our self-worth and how we think about ourselves and relate to our emotional pain. And that, of course, relates to how we think about our body as a whole and all the things we work on in this podcast with regards to our health in a more holistic, for lack of a better term, or a more broad picture view way than our typical focus on weight loss. So we are going to dive in to talk about comparative suffering, how it's often a major barrier to moving forward. So let's dive in. But first of all, I will say if you are new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And if you want to get some background information about what this podcast is all about, why is it called motivation made easy? Why is it not the typical way you think about motivation? Check out our foundational episodes in the show notes. You will get an overview and you will know what we're all about here. So the links to that are all in the show notes. But let's get going. And just before we do our normal reminder that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a replacement or to be construed as medical or any form of professional advice, and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. All right, guys, let's dive in. 
So let's start with what is comparative suffering. Comparative suffering is all about, again, evaluating or ranking our current emotional pain against others and deciding which one is more deserving of being felt, essentially. So have you ever said something like, oh, but so many people have it worse than me. I feel bad for even mentioning it. I just feel like I'm whining or complaining. I feel like I'm burdening other people. Or I have it so good, I should just be grateful. So I think if, I believe we all do this. I know I do. I did this all the time in the past and it really kept me from moving through some of my own stuff. And I still do this. I am actively working on this. Even just last week, I realized that I was carrying a lot of shame of the frustration I had with some of the my core muscles after having kids. And, you know, my this intense feeling of shame really came from the fact that I know many women struggle with even argue, I even want to say more emotional pain, because again, that tendency to compare, but I know a lot of women cannot have children or struggle to have the family they want to have. And that's incredibly painful. And so it's easy for me to say, well, quit complaining about not having a functional core. And that's not, frankly, not serving anyone. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So even as I kind of was writing this blog post and thinking about this episode, it's I was feeling the need to justify it to you, like tell you how grateful I am for my children and how I would just gladly take a lifetime of non-functional core muscles for them. I still feel guilty and bad, like I'm complaining about it in some way. And so I just use that as an example that this is incredibly common. But here's the thing. No one benefits from my unaddressed feelings of shame. Literally no one. So not not the women who I view as potentially having worse pain to cope with with regards to trying to become a mother. And in fact, my pain and guilt left unaddressed can actually harm others in many different ways. So in this scenario, I might be less emotionally available or present when I have the opportunity to listen or to support someone I love who's going through something painful, whether it's related to motherhood or, or something else. But there's a lot of ways that unaddressed shame has a huge impact because when we have unaddressed shame, we are more down, we are typically more depressed, we may be more irritable or angry. And that can lead to a whole bunch of problems for all the people in your life and, of course, for you as well. So many times in therapy, I also hear people saying things like, gosh, I feel bad for even saying this, but it might be easier for if I had a more objectively difficult past. So they're saying, and I hear this all the time, and I've had this thought myself, like if I had a significant trauma in my past, maybe I'd be able to give myself more empathy because I feel like my pain was more valid somehow. Like if I knew, okay, I went through this trauma or went through this really difficult, um, you know, upbringing, and therefore I'm going to be able to validate my pain more often as an adult. Not only is this really unlikely to be true. So, I mean, as 
many therapists can tell you who have worked with people, you know, with a wide variety of pasts that you might say are objectively more or less challenging. Even in those, at a, even if that were true from a deep down practical level, that, you know, most of the time those people aren't able to give themselves more compassion and more validation of their emotions. But like I said, even if that were true, is not acknowledging or validating your pain helping you or helping anyone? I would argue the answer is no. So again, no one wins when you don't acknowledge your pain. And the more that I continue to reflect on this topic and reflect on my own experiences, the more I realize that not only does no one benefit from you not acknowledging your pain, but the world truly needs you to do so. So let me tell you what I mean by that. The world truly needs you to show up as your full authentic self in courageous, courageous ways. And, and so that you can have more of what you want in your life. But also, this might also be, mean that you're able to more sh show up more fully to fight for causes that you believe in or to show up vulnerably and authentically in relationships that matter most to you. So not validating your pain may feel slightly less uncomfortable in the moment than acknowledging it and moving through it. But again, no one is benefiting from this. So it's something too that, like I mentioned, as this unacknowledged pain comes out as anger, depression, anxiety, keeps us living small, not fully seen, and not fully known. It's a tough way to live, and typically, again, no one benefits. So in terms of how we understand our personal story and notice the tendency to compare, next week's episode is going to delve even more into some of the reasons that you should consider sharing your story. And this can be in big or small ways. I'll talk about that next week, but this does not have to mean sharing your story on a podcast, right? Um, it can, but there's a lot of other ways to share your story that's really meaningful. But remember that your story is your own. It's a unique and important, no matter what the details are. And again, I think most of us struggle with this. I know I do. And some of my hesitancy to share my personal details online were related to more my profession. I didn't want to be seen as unprofessional. I also didn't want to make my clients uncomfortable. They learned more about me than they typically would in a therapy setting. But also I was worried and to some extent still worry that people will judge based on the lack of difficulty or perceived difficulty that I've had in my life. In fact, um, Brene Brown is doing a podcast series with her sisters all about the gifts of imperfection, which is an incredible book. It's at, at the 10th anniversary edition just came out and or maybe last year, but she was saying that many people kind of assume her life was really perfect growing up and she shares that it really wasn't and, and really no one's is, but the phrase I hear all the time is this idea of like, I've had a good life. I should be grateful. And this is another one that I, if I were to get a dollar for every time I heard it, I would be pretty rich. And 
this is one I've said to myself, but it's really important to remember that you can be incredibly grateful for your life and still acknowledge the pain that exists as a part of being a human being. So this is not the same as complaining or being ungrateful. It's not blaming anyone. It's not not taking responsibility. It's just describing the reality of the situation. And in fact, acknowledging the past in an accurate and also self-compassionate way is one of the most effective ways to take responsibility for living a value-aligned life, for living a life that is consistent with your values and how you want to show up in the world. So for me, I've had a really good life. I very much love my life. I've had some tough things happen in the past for sure, and more recently, some things that would be considered traumas or losses. And it also really feels like very much nothing compared to the pain that other people experience in this world. And arguably, you could say objectively, I mean, I've had a lot of privilege in my life. And that is something that is a fact. There's a whole bunch of privilege that I'm still learning about that I have and have always had and and sort of unpacking that is somewhat uncomfortable, but important. A great example of this is I had a conversation back in episode six of the podcast. So a ways back now where I talked to my friend Quinn Minier about the book, The Body is Not an Apology, which is a wonderful book by Sonia Renee Taylor. And we discussed uh, body shame and some of her experiences as a black woman. And I've experienced some body shame at various points in my life, but many people who whose bodies do not fit what we're told is the good body, whether it's like good in terms of health or just social status, typically this is white, cis, thin, etc. They people have a whole other layer of BS to deal with that I, that I have not had to deal with. And I think it's important to acknowledge our privilege and also we have to consider what comparative suffering might be costing ourselves and also costing the world, as I've been mentioning. So if I stayed in comparative suffering and said, well, my life has been objectively easier in many ways and very privileged compared to others, who benefits from that? Um, because storytelling and examples are so powerful and they really can bring concepts to life. If I were to stay in comparative suffering mode, this blog and podcast wouldn't be a thing in the way that it is. I mean, I could definitely focus on other people's stories and that very much could be very valuable. And I try to do a combination, but one of the, the unique benefits Interestingly to this podcast is I've actually grown closer to some people in my personal life because we are having more real and authentic, honest conversations about these topics. And a lot of the stuff I share on this podcast, I, I haven't shared extensively with people in my personal life. It's, I mean, I've shared some of it, but so that's been a kind of a cool benefit that I didn't even realize. And so when you, like all of us are falling into comparative suffering, I'd ask you to consider this. What is it costing you? What are you holding back from the world that perhaps the world needs? And what would you do if you were brave in that moment? 
what would you do differently? So with that said, I want to talk about a couple of steps that you can take to stop allowing comparative suffering to hold you back. So the first step is just to notice it, right? Always awareness. As with anything, you must first notice when you're doing it in order to change it. So when you notice yourself saying things like stop complaining, when really you're not complaining, you're just acknowledging or describing the reality of a situation, you can acknowledge the pain and suffering of others accurately. So gosh, I've never had to deal with teasing about my weight in childhood. That must have been so incredibly hard. You can acknowledge that while also still acknowledging your own pain. So maybe your pain is, I've, I've internalized the idea that smaller bodies are better. And therefore, when I look in the mirror, I criticize the heck out of my body. And that makes me really angry and sad. The temptation is to compare pain. But the reality is the result is both still painful. And that is not diminishing anyone else's pain by acknowledging your own. So first we just have to notice it and name it. Step two is to remind yourself and remember that compared to suffering is really common. So part of self-compassion is developing the idea that of common humanity. And that is the idea that human suffering is universal. We all struggle. We are wired for struggle and you are not alone in that struggle. Many people have experienced similar struggles, though maybe the external symptom or presentation can look different as we've talked about in this podcast a lot. Comparative suffering is something we talk about because it's really, really common. It comes up, I've seen it come up a lot lately. But remember the other, a couple weeks ago too, we talked about the idea of toxic positivity and this, not the idea of not thinking positive, but that you should only think positive, no negative vibes, no one wants to hear your problems. And just remember that these ways of approaching things are not effective and it doesn't lead to any form of emotional resilience. Vulnerability and authentic authenticity is how we connect and comparative suffering though is really common and we'll continue to do it. I still do it all of the time, but I notice it. I don't beat myself up and I realize it is a normal thing, but I also realize it's not serving me. So then we move on to what we can control. So step three is to name the pain for what it is. So when you notice yourself jumping into invalidation of yourself and self-criticism, stopping and saying something to yourself like, wow, you're really beating yourself up about this. There's a lot of shame here. That's allowed. Maybe take a deep breath, name the shame, such as, you know, when my friend made that comment about her body and wanting to lose weight, it brought up a really uncomfortable feeling in me because perhaps you felt like maybe I should, or maybe what does she think of my body? In that moment, I don't need to blame her or blame myself for having this emotion. I don't have to get rid of it. I can just name it and breathe. Step four is to cultivate self-compassion. This can often be a harder one, but do not skip it. I 
will tell you, I'm, I actively work on this. And in fact, I just recorded recently this week an interview with Dr. Adia Gooden, who is really incredible. She talks about cultivating unconditional self-worth, and you are going to love that interview. It comes out in two weeks. And I actually realized in that interview how I still have a good deal of work to do in this area. And I think it's the work is never done, right? You can't check it off your list. But to actively cultivate self-compassion, I tend to be sort of practical in my nature of things. And I say, like, what's effective and what isn't. And this idea of cultivating self-compassion, I sort of felt like I had worked on it. And I think I, I very much have. And there's a lot of opportunity for continuing to work on it that sort of came through to me in my discussion with Dr. Gooden and also in listening to her podcast, Unconditional, Unconditionally Worthy is the name of her podcast, and it's excellent. So this might look like self-talk such as, like, after you experience pain, right? You might say something to yourself like, I am so sorry you're feeling that pain. It's all right. I'm here for you. And when Dr. Gooden described this in the interview, she probably, she frankly did a much better job than even I just did there. So <laughs> I'm a work in progress, right? But she put her hands on over her chest or over her heart region, and it was like almost like a self-hug. So self-compassion is being there for yourself, picking yourself up when you falter, when you struggle, being your own biggest supporter. And then the upcoming interview, we talk about this more in depth, but if this type of self-talk feels like a really big stretch, she talked about trying to think about how you'd talk to a child if they were in pain or even a small like pet or a puppy dog that was really scared, lonely, or sad. This is really powerful because we're a lot better at comforting beings that we think of as vulnerable and, and maybe really needing us. And it's really powerful and really counterintuitive. But the reality is we are vulnerable and we really need to show up for ourselves in a better, more self-compassionate way. So I thought that was so cool because yes, we talk in this podcast about like getting support and, and reaching out for support and absolutely you should be doing that. But you can also be your own biggest champion your own best friend however you want to think about it in a way that is incredibly effective for you moving through your emotions and not letting it your emotions keep you stuck your shame that is inevitable for all of us we all have shame not letting us keep you from the things that matter the very most to you so i hope that this was helpful today I know I'm going to be working on this, and I really hope that you will too. So with that said, before we finish up here today, let's focus on what we really can control in building these skills. But if you kind of want to know what, what, is, what am I working towards, what should I be focusing on as I work towards self-compassion, let's talk about that. So you probably already know that the vast majority of weight loss plans fail within one to five years, if not sooner. And those are, I mean, these are even like the best, most evidence-based ones that we're studying here. So 
It's pretty frustrating. The stats are not good. The stats are very, very accurate in how ineffective behavior change efforts are for us. And as we talk about in this podcast, there's a whole reason, bunch of reasons for that. But what if I told you that there was one measure or one thing that predicted exercise behavior three years down the road, as well as weight maintenance? Would you be interested? So autonomous motivation, as I'm sure you are not that surprised because I love talking about it, autonomous motivation for exercise or really any behavior is predictive of long-term change over years. So for women studied in this particular study, autonomous motivation for exercise predicted weight loss maintenance and exercise three years later. So the women that developed that form of motivation were still doing it three years later. And this type of data in the weight management field is incredibly rare. So when we find it, we have to pay attention. So I bet you're like, all right, cool, Sean, how do I get this type of motivation for exercise? Well, I created a free resource just for you. So to gain autonomous motivation, you have to first clarify what matters to you. Not your mom, not your sister, not your coworker. And taking time to reflect on your values, creating value-aligned goals is one of the most important things you can do for yourself. So give yourself this gift, grab this free guide, and walk you through. Just take a couple minutes out of your day to reflect on this and walk you through to clarify your most important values so that you can develop that holy grail autonomous motivation. You can go to the link in the show notes or go to drhondorp.com forward slash goals and grab it for free right now. So that's all for today. Make sure you tune in next week. We're going to be talking all about why you should share your story and how to do so. So don't worry. It doesn't have to be public, but there there's power in it. And we're going to be diving into all of that. So I'll see you there. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.